You listen to 247 Real Talk. This is your host, Julian Perry, along with my guest for this episode. She is Leah Kieo, the CEO and founder of With Respect. We'll be back to chat about diversity, equity, and a whole host of other things related to that subject. So good afternoon, Kia Kieo, Leah Kieo. I have to get that right. <laughs> it's an unusual <laughs> name, so forgive my mispronunciation at any time. Welcome to 247 Real Talk Podcast. Thank you for uh, willing to uh, your willingness to be a guest in the middle of the afternoon here on Wednesday, November 17th. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have the conversation, Julian. Yes, I am too. So we're going to start this off by... Yeah, you know, I already uh, fumbled over your name a few times, so I know my audience would want to know your background. So tell us, you know, give us a background about Leah and about With Respect. Thanks so much. Um, so I identify as what I call two-skinned. Um, I have a mother who was a Blackfoot and a father who was an um, Appalachian white man. And so I have had the privilege um, and curse of walking um, kind of that tightrope between those two worlds um, with a recognition and having learned very early in my youth that uh, white privilege is a thing. And um, I was born into a family, a father's family, uh, where drugs and guns were the family business. So I was an inner city thug from the time I can remember. Um, I was a runner at seven, full-blown addict at 10. And um, taught to steal cars at 15, you know, just the progression of being brought up through that that um, family lens. In that time period, by the time I was seven, I had lost my mother, two brothers, and a sister, all of whom were um, darker skinned than I am. They were brown people. And in the process of that loss, it was pointed out to me that the reason that I wasn't among them um, when that, when that, um, tragedy occurred was because the color of my skin made me accountable. Someone would miss me. And so I had a white privilege backdrop early, early on in my life. And I watched it play out in a thousand ways. Um, including, so, you know, in, in the industries of, of, you know, that inner city working, um, it's hard to grow old. And as I looked around, 24 seemed to be old in the industry. And I really wanted to be older than that. Um, and, you know, I went to school where we were warehoused. It was an inner city school, high school. And um, somehow I came into the focus of two white middle-class women. One was a guidance counselor and one was an English teacher who really kind of took me under their wing my father had an um, eighth grade education. My mother had a sixth grade education. It wasn't um, something that was important in my family. Um, and But these two women made it their mission to help me figure out how to get into college. And while it wasn't a straight trajectory out, I mean, I married my dealer, seemed like a really good idea at the time, you know, ended up with two kids. I mean, all, all of those things that happened along the way. It was because of that leg up um, that allowed me to ultimately stand in the position I'm in. In contrast, my best friend, who was black, who was probably as smart, if not smarter than I am, didn't get the same leg up. So throughout my history, um, that, that oppression, that very, very obvious um, difference in how people were treated was present and called out. It's why I do this work. It's because um, I lived it and I lived the privilege and it was, has never been okay for it to, to happen. And so I am in the business. Um, I now have, I have a bachelor's in psychology, a master's degree in um, education special ed and a, an almost PhD in educational administration and leadership. So I got to go far and 
A lot of the folks that I grew up with didn't. That's not how this world is supposed to work. So with respect is all about finding ways, creating tools, having conversations and coming together to find a way to make a world, this world, a different place, to leave an impact to the seventh generation, which is very much in my cultural background. Um, it means that as we take each step in our life, we look forward and know that how it's going to impact out to the seventh generation. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from and who I am. Okay. That was a fantastic introduction. Uh, before I even get into the, the chit chat, um, I think my audience, I'm sure, uh, intrigued to know. And if you don't feel comfortable sharing, that's okay. But you mentioned the loss of your mother and siblings, and there was a differentiation because of the color of your skin. And if you can, what was the cause of their loss? Um, my mother was shot and killed. My older brother and sister were stabbed and my baby brother was smothered. Um, all at the hand of, um, my father. So, um, it was an abusive situation, the violence that goes along right alongside, um, that lifestyle. And what was the fate of your father as a result? Nothing. It was just another dead Indian. Nobody noticed. That was the problem. Oh, wow. It went on, it <clears throat> went unnoticed. It went unheeded and it went unavenged. And that's not okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm not going to press that issue for you. I just thought that was important to know, but it actually ties mm -hmm. in very, very much with, so you and I spoke earlier before this recording um, and we touched on a few different subjects and um, it was my inclination to start the conversation off, you know, as related to um, some of the work you do in, in, in working environments and business, et cetera. But while I was, uh, you know, here preparing for this uh, episode, I was, you know, surfing on my phone and something came across my phone that I thought would be different, but a, um, a very powerful way to start the conversation. So I'm going to read to you a very, very short uh, press release that came across my phone. It's dated November 17th, and it says uh, it's in Rivers Riverside, Missouri, and it says four students who were disciplined after a petition seeking to restart slavery was posted on social media are suing their Kansas City School District for civil rights violations. The students from Park Hill South High School said the posting in September began as a part of bantering between a biracial student and a black student, according to a federal lawsuit filed on Friday. After other students laughed at the petition, it was posted on social media drawing national media coverage. The biracial student was expelled, and three other students who commented on the petition were suspended for 180 days. All the students were in ninth graders and members of the school's football team. Now, what got me right away about that, and, and I think it's a great way to start this conversation, is just the fact that with people like yourself and so many others, you know, sort of screaming to the world the need for change, the need for conversation, the need for um, the real truth to be instilled, in, you know, from the from youth all the way up, so that the the whole atmosphere can change. That story I just read to you really bothered me because, first of all, you have ninth graders who felt that it was it was comical to post something that says you know, slave, slavery should be reestablished. And you have, to, you have to draw a conclusion from that that they have no clue about what, what the word slavery and what the, what the experience of slavery was. They have no clue that there are parts of it that still exist today as what we call modern-day slavery. They felt it was okay to make fun of something that, not only historical, but that, uh, impactful through, throughout four or five hundred years as a joke. And then it's, it's even more poignant than it was between a biracial student and a black student. What are your thoughts about that? I have a couple of thoughts. The challenge of biracial, which is what I, is my term, is two skinned, is that. You kind of live in a world where you're 
never enough on either side, never white enough, and in my case, never race, never native enough. And as a result, it doesn't surprise me when biracial kids are doing things outlandishly that scream, see, I'm light. Um, so there's, there's that component of what I see. The other reality that I am intrigued by is that these were ninth graders and the response is purely punitive. The, because the issue that we have across our, our society right now is that conversation isn't happening. We're yelling at each other. We're drawing lines. We're standing on either side of a battlefield. But we're not sitting down at a table to say, wait, help me understand where you're coming from. We don't have adults in this situation who are reaching into these kids and saying, here, let me help you understand why this is so atrocious. Let me help you understand why you got the, the response that you got. And let's move towards having um, real conversation that moves people towards resolution instead of punitive where what we do with, with, with punishment is we create more of, um, of a divide between the two sides. Mm -hmm. So it's, and, and I think it's a microcosm of the macrocosm of society. Currently we have people who are trying to prove who they are, who they want to be, how they want to be seen and are doing it in ways that are damaging and hurtful to others. Yes. The other reflection of this is that it's we are in a time when our history is under scrutiny, right? The we're we're battling back and forth about what is the history, and again, we're creating divisiveness. And we all have ancestors who did things that we are, would not necessarily agree with now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those bad things didn't happen. It also doesn't mean that there's only one side to the story. And that's, that's the other part of what I see in this. There's only one side of the story being explored. And where the kids get the idea that, that slavery could be reinstated, that that could even be a possibility, right? I mean, I, that's part of what I'm, I'm like, how the heck did they even think that could, I mean, why would that be, be where your brain goes? So I don't, I don't see this as a as an isolated experience, right? This is I think this is probably more common and this is conversation that is more common. This one's been called out enough for us to be able to see raised above the den, but it's not in isolation. And that's the other scary part of this. Yes, and 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 I agree with you um uh reflecting on a couple of things you said. The first one is the punishment for it, you know, in, 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 instead of 180 days and, and uh, um, expulsion, they probably should have been put in some sort of mandatory uh, maybe study group. I don't, know what, I don't know what the right thing off the top of my head, but something where they were forced to explore the exact subject that they were, that they made fun of so that they mm -hmm. at some point, you know, would have in that six months, 180 days would have gotten to a point where they, they, they understood why what they did would, you know, like you said, receive such a response and they, and they were, you know, hopefully with the right teachers would be able to, you know, internalize the feeling of, of, of both sides of the matter so that they would understand going forward, the sensitivity that's necessary and, 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 and right and wrong, basically. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing that concerns me is that, you know, a lot of times when we hear these stories, they seem to come from certain parts of the country um, in different ways or, or different levels sometimes that, 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 you know, that is sort of worrisome too, because we're not having a national conversation. You know, we're having mm -hmm. um, like a tea party with several different ta tables and each person is having a, a conversation, with, you know, of a different aspect and we're not having a unified conversation. And I think that, the bigger struggle is, and over the past few years, we've had all this divisiveness and we've had all this 
outward show of, 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 of racism and prejudice. And we've, you know, we've sort of blown the lid off of, um, you know, the, the, the hidden society of, of, um, systemic racism. And so, you know, without the national conversation, people are, you know, from one side and not hearing universally what people on the other side have to say. And then we've got mm-hmm. a third aspect I was thinking as, you know, before, uh, our conversation now is that I look at the responses when someone is, when someone says something, and I mentioned this to you earlier, we, you know, a lot of times we say, I'm listening to you, but we're not really listening. We're not hearing what they're really saying. And because (laughs) of that, I think that in many cases you see people who, who um, have sort of been ingrained and, and conditioned by the environment to be, to have a certain perspective on race find that their their defense is to in, is is insults rather than you know you know you know taking the time to hear what someone's really saying and to digest it and to understand it we you know they just it's just one side spewing insults at the other side and it's it's sad because as many people as the, like yourself and, and others and this podcast even is trying to make a difference I find myself frustrated at times because I, I seem to bump into this wall of people who, um, you know, sometimes derogatory terms come to my mind in, 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 as well, where I use the term ignorance sometimes. It's not, it's not right to do. But you get to that point of frustration because people, people say things that they either repeat from someone else or they've been told to say or they've been conditioned to say. You know, it's like they've stopped thinking and stopped feeling. Mm-hmm. And and the other the other thing that you know I I have spent my life doing is people can't they don't know what to do with it they don't have any tools to think about it they don't have any tools to talk about it and they don't have any tools to be able to categorize it within their own thought processes within their own psyche and that's part of what's missing is that you know um, none of us are hardwired for conflict to do effective conflict management, right? We have to be taught how to do that. And most of us don't learn that until we're adults because <laughs> we don't teach it to kids. And the number of parents who don't have it is pretty high. And so parents aren't giving it to kids either. And so when they have conflict, their response is to inflate. And, and you know, we could also get into the conversation around toxic masculinity, which is, you said these were football players ninth grade football players. My um, own bias says that there is probably toxic masculinity in play here. They're trying to, to, you know, blow their chests up and be bigger than the other guy. So, I mean, I I think that that's part of, of when we look at, at this concept of diversity, we can't just pull out one lens, right? We can't just look at people through that single identity. We have to see how the entire um, social conditioning on top of the system of oppression creates multi-layers within each of us that we suddenly are doing and saying things we didn't know we thought or believed until they showed up, which we have, you know, the phrase that we've coined for that is negative implicit bias, right? And microaggressions. So in this case, that microaggression exaggerated into a macroaggression. So I... How do we how do we make sure nationally as as a society having these conversations that everyone coming to the table is learning skills, is learning tools, has something to be able to manage this within themselves and, and in public at large? Yes, I absolutely agree. It's it's and, and the task in the whole, you know, by itself is a tough one um, to even get started sometimes because of, you know, the, the differences in people. People who, and I'm sure you've encountered this, people who have, well, for however they got the information, they have, they're, they're sort of ingrained in that mindset and, and, you know, having a logical conversation with them can be the most frustrating thing because one thing that we need to be willing to do to have this conversation is to hear the other party, to, to be open-minded enough to admit that maybe our current perspective is wrong or it needs to be reshaped a little bit because we don't know everything about the other side of the, you know, of the conversation. And, and we made a lot of assumptions prior to hearing from the, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, 
the others themselves. And so I don't know mm-hmm. if you ever had that instance where you, you're speaking to someone and they're so adamant about what they're saying and, and that there's no room for a conversation. Yes. And, and what, so when I, when I, I engage in those kinds of conversations, what I know to be true is that the tool that I use is what I call authentic curiosity. Because what happens is if we fall into asking questions, we pull out of people way more information than if we battle them, you know, head to head, tit for tat. It's much easier to say, you know, someone shows up with something that kind of looks like it's out of the blue and saying, tell me more. Help me understand how you see it that way. So you see this, 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 and this. How does that play out over here, right? So that I'm, I'm... I spend my time with those folks asking those questions and driving in the direction of really seeking to hear, seeking to understand. Because the other thing that I know is any form of recovery, right, that broad idea, whether we're recovering from an addiction, recovering from child abuse, it doesn't matter. The story has to be heard before people are willing to actually engage in solutions. So I know that the person who has, you know, blown their top needs to be heard. And by asking questions and inviting more information in, one, I'm moving them. So reaction comes from our our lower brain, right, our lizard brain. By asking questions, you're asking them to respond, move to their frontal cortex, move them into thinking things instead of just emotionally reacting. And by doing that, we turn this... um, sometimes um, colossal and, and potentially volatile conversation into a true conversation. And I'm not saying it works 100% of the time, but it works a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember an indi- um, a, a white individual, and we were having the conversation how of um, in our, in the way that we break things down, um, any of the isms, Racism, genderism, heterosexism, you know, pick one, requires systemic power, which means that people of color cannot be racist. They are prejudiced. They can be discriminatory. They can write all of those things, right? But it's still not um, racism because they don't have the systemic power. And I had a white individual who had experienced Um, prejudice and discrimination um, from a person of color and wanted desperately for that to be racism. And as the situation devolved, (laughs) I finally looked at him and I said, why is it so important to you that we call it racism? What is it about that that you need? I was hurt and no one seems to care that you're hurt unless unless it's racism. So now we're at we're now we're at the core of his individual in issue, which is playing into the conversation in a global way. So that's the 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 ability the and the art of being able to ask that question and grab people and move them into into this. Now let's have a conversation about that. You're right. You were hurt. You were wronged. And right. And so so that's that's kind of my experience with that my understanding and how i move that forward yes that is that is that is um very important um a very significant point to make i want to um make a twist here at this moment and sort of bring this into the workplace a little bit um or a lot Mm -hmm. because i think that (laughs) It's, it's something that with your experience, it, you know, definitely needs to be part of this conversation and will be beneficial to so many in my audience. Speak, and I've experienced it myself and I've seen certain things within the workplace. I know that your uh, company, you're, you're, you target that as well. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to bring about the conversation because I've seen things over the last few years that you know, were very clear to me and and I could see the struggle and I'm going to bring the first one up and it's, I've seen a few situations where a few um, black men, um, 
I'm not, I'm not saying it's, it's not indicative of black women too. I'm just saying in my experience was mm-hmm. referencing and they got to pretty high up the ladder and they got to a position of, of what I would say um, great responsibility and to however we want to categorize it, at least reasonable power. And mm-hmm. here they were faced in a situation where, you know, in having conversations with them, um, they looked at the the levels of of in the, in the hierarchy above them and recognized that they were predominantly white, and and bo- in both genders, male you know female, they were predominantly white, and they made a. I remember one of them making a comment and saying, you know, they really take care of themselves, their own people, and so in the process over time of of this this person, this uh, senior manager um, building their organization, I noticed that the organization they were building lacked diversity when I know that there was existing talent from, you know, many ethnic groups. And when I, when I really took the time, you know, out of conversations and, and paying attention, what I got out of it from things that they said was, you know, they wanted to to level the playing field. They wanted to give the people now that they were responsible for promotions to, to, to showcase their talents and to give them opportunity. But they felt that if they did it, then the, the, the hierarchy above them would look at it. And I guess there was an inherent fear would see it as them helping black people, them helping minorities. And so it would come off as them being prejudicial. They could, you know, they, and it's 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 a it's a very complex uh, thing when you really look at it because there's many ways there's different lens you can look at it through and have different opinions of what's going on there. But because I heard some people say, well, you know what, this person, is, you know, they're a minority, they finally made it, and they don't care about you know, other people like themselves. Then someone else would say, you know, I can't believe that they're scared to help someone. You know, even and, and when I say help people. Not no one is requesting that they that they choose someone of color over someone of white for no obvious reason. They were saying that even in on a, on a parallel playing field, when two people go for a position and they're equally qualified, or it's you know the the person of color did not get the nod. Right? Some in mm-hmm. some cases, it was even a person of color had been with the with the company for you know decades, and the person that got the nod, who was not a color, who was equally matched, was from the outside. So mm-hmm. what are your thoughts? So as you said, it's a complex issue, right? It's, and so what I see is um, what we know in terms of brain development is that we are all hardwired for bias. There are 182 of them that I know of that have been coded in the brain. And they're all based on the concepts of survival. They are um, everything from affinity bias, which says I am attracted to people who are um, similar or the same as me, and that's where safety lies, um, all the way to um, uh, how do I know if I've got too much going on, what information is important so that I can make a decision quickly to to keep myself safe, right? Those are the implicit biases that are naturally there. Then we take social conditioning, right, which is all of the the full system of oppression that says, here's how white people behave, here are the gender norms, here are how you're supposed to fit into this box. If you want to be a C-level leader, you're going to have to be in this box right here. And as we take those in and layer them on top of those already in place biases, that's when we begin to get our negative um, negative bias systems. And what happens is as you rise in in an organization, there is a cultural norm for the people who are in the C-level box, right? The CEO, the CTO, right? That level has a culture. And that culture in most cases has been driven by the culture of power, which in this country tends to be white males with money. Okay. And as a result of that, 
as people rise, they have to take on that cultural norm. They have to begin to do what those people do, look like, behave like, be like that in order to be able to, to rise in that ladder. And if you're not at the top, if you screw up, you can be knocked down a rung or two or all of them. And that, so that fear is real. And so what happens is that implicit bias gets into play and people who get into power, because it happens to women too. Women suddenly become, you know, they're, they're at this sea level and they are so much harder on other women. And it's the same idea. That's that internalized depression that we all experience. And it's this idea that now I have to figure out how to negotiate who I am in this business with who I am in, in my own skin and in my, real, in my own life. And I have to balance those out. And for some folks, they are shutting the door on the camaraderie of their people, quote unquote, right? So, so thinking it through in terms of that um, logical development, it is a natural response. The trick is that when we begin to become educated about that natural response, we now get to make choices about that, both the people who are standing at the sea level right now, as well as the people who are climbing that sea level. And that's why, in my opinion, when we are looking at um, systemic organizational diversity, equity, and inclusion training, at so many levels, that top executive level has to be coached. And the coaching is going to be done best by people who look like them, who are, who are better informed and who have the tools and skills to be able to say, you know, here's what the culture is now because it's a norm. Now let's talk about what you want it to be and create the intentionality. And that's how we begin to make the breakdown. We have a tendency to do, you know, the professional development, um, go do that to those people kind of thing, right? Teach everybody, right? Accept the, the top echelon. Top echelon has to have the same information. So, I, you know, I have a tendency to solve my problems too. Sorry. That's okay, but it's it's uh, no, that's very good information. But and it's it's thought provoking because as you're saying that too, I'm saying okay, that's the top echelon. But while they are in their learning process and their learning curve and their acceptance and their 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 in own internal battles to get to that place, you've got what we're going to term for this conversation, the oppressed, the ones who have continued to get up each day and, and struggle in their, in their personal lives because of, uh, and I'm going to uh, explore this a bit. So they, they struggle with many things. They struggle with conversations at work where they were spoken to or, or addressed or, or handled as for lack of a better term in a manner that is, is um, that, that sort of, pushes the buttons of, of, of the prejudice and racism that exists. Um, they struggle because they continuously are in this battle to move onward and upward. And they each, whether they look internally at the organizations or externally, they, they sort of face the same animal um, because of this. This mm -hmm. is, a, is, a, is a global issue. Um, mm -hmm. They struggle because in the meantime, they're trying to live some semblance of a decent life, which which is um, has the inherent characteristic of, of of expense in it, of paying the bills, of of managing, of 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 of, of, of desire as a human being as you go through life that you you know you want to accomplish certain goals, both in 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 personal improvement and in materialistic things to a certain extent. That's who we are as human beings, and you know how do they? How do you get someone who has been sort of lack of better term beaten up by this struggle for so long, you know, and, and they're hearing now in, in recent times, um, a bit more of the conversations having on the forefront, but are happening on the forefront, but they don't see a path to getting those above them to look at the struggle and look at the solutions in a manner that's effective and will make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 like, you know, to, to, to say it in a different way, 
if I walk into the office tomorrow and I'm tired of dealing with this, who do I start having this conversation with? Who will allow me to have this conversation? Who will listen to me? And, you know, who up that, that corporate ladder chain, you know, will, will, will actually engage me or, you know, otherwise I'm powerless. What do you say to that person? One of the things I know that is true is that as individuals, we all have a place where we need an ally and a place where we can be an ally. And when I need an ally, I need to be able to look around and look for those people who can be my allies. And when I am in a position where I can be an ally, I need to be looking around and being mindful of places where I can be an ally for an individual. So it's, it's in my world. Um, for example, I am a woman-owned business. There are some places that I'm not going to get through the door as a woman-owned business. I need masculine. I need someone who is a male-owned business. So I go to an ally and I say, hey, you're the one who's going to be able to get our foot through this door. If we collaborate, we have so much more to offer them, but I need, I need you to, to front this. Can you, are you willing to do that with me? Right? That's me seeking an ally. And in turn, my ally then says, you know, um, is, is going to, as we move forward, not going to steal the credit, for lack of a better thing, right? They're going to, to point out what is our, what is, what is mine, what is theirs, what is ours. And so that recognition of when I'm, when I'm somebody in the, in the ranks who is um, target to that oppressive experience, I need to be looking around. Who are my allies at the next level up? Who are the people that I can go to and say, okay, so the system is rigged. What is it that I can do? How can you help me understand this differently? What is it that, that you might be able to facilitate with me, for me, that, we, that can make this change? Because part of this is that systemic oppression is about all of us. So there isn't any one of us who's going to fix it. It's going to take all of us. And um, Audre Lorde talks about the fact that in so many ways, we cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. We have to come in with the new tools and the new ideas and the new ways of being able to manage on a one-to-one, you know, um, interpersonal level that will begin to make that change. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. But I was, I'm, you know, you know, this is a, this is a conversation that can really go on for a while because it has so many layers. Because I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, as you were speaking, I'm saying, you know, when you look for an ally, the next caveat that came to mind automatically is is it, it, it's very sometimes it's very difficult to discern from an ally their actual purpose and their actual goal and, and what drives them. And I say that to the, you know, I may be looking for an ally to change something in, in, in the way a corporation views its employees for, so that there's, you know, this, you sort of get rid of this, the systemic racism within that corporation and, and allow for diversity and the, but I may be doing it from a perspective of, of progression. Um, whereas the, um, other person may be doing it from um, an inherent hatred or, you know, something else that's driving them that, um, where, you know, you'll get to a point where you may be some, you may be heading forward in the journey and you realize that, and, and I'm going to try to say this in a way that I'm thinking it, you, you realize that when you start making progress and then you hit a wall or you're getting a certain uh, feedback from those that you have to engage that that is not uh, welcoming it may be because the person who is your ally or if you know, it could be me myself if i'm the p- person with the issue uh is, uh, is being received a certain way because of it, it, it's it's visible to someone that's interacting with me that you know the place i'm coming from is not a place of progression. It's a place of anger. It's a place of uh, resentment. It's a place of, you know, um, uh, it's, 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 it's sort of a, um, who I am is a myth in terms of, of the movement. It's just, you, you, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I think that, that one of the things that you're hitting on is that we don't, we have a tendency with language to throw words around like we all mean the same thing, right? I mean, I think of the word respect. And based on where you come from, what culture you're from, um, what religious uh, background you have, what community, who raised you, all of those things impact your idea of the word respect. But so if I say it, I mean something probably very different than what you mean. But we can both look at each other and say, be respectful. But we are not clear about what that is. We have that problem with the word ally. So um, my, my work is such that we do define those words very clearly. And an ally is someone who is doing the individual work of breaking down their own personal biases. It's, it's the... Um, it's it's the it's the part of us that wants to continually get better at seeing the world in a way that is allowing everyone to step in um, to the degree that they want to and allow and all of those kinds of, of wonderful utopian kinds of ideas, right? But the core work of an ally is around themselves. So I'm when I when I talk about an ally, I'm looking for somebody who is doing some internal work as well as someone who wants to help me make um, systemic change. And the other big piece that you that you know I hear continually in this conversation is when we are talking about an organization, there have to be common tools, common language, things we understand, so that when we come into these difficult conversations, these emotional conversations, we're, we're able to sit down and say, I hear you, and how do we move forward? And on the other side saying, I need you to hear me. Here's what I, I need from you. Here's what I want. And being willing to hear no, and what are you going to do then, right? All of those tools that are in there have to be systemically applied. And that's part of the challenge we have in this work um, is that, um, one, not all DEI professionals are coming in bringing tools. Um, and not all are coming in bringing actionable um, uh, progress. It's, it's the, um, here's the awareness, here's where you want to get, there you go, right? There's nothing actionable in there. And so um, we have to, to provide that action. Organizations can say, you know, we're going to be anti-racist. We're never all going to sing Kumbaya on the street. What are you going to do with the people who are not going to buy into that? Are you kicking them out? What does that look like? We have to have that forethought. And so that's what's missing in corporate America right now. Um, I mean, we all know that when, when Black Lives Matter was at its peak, you know, we had large corporations who were committing dollars and committing to having, you know, training and doing all of this work. And as time has gone on, what we're looking at is it wasn't done with fidelity. It wasn't done. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a lot of bluster and not a lot of follow-up, right? So, so some of what you're talking about is that systemic component that we can only address systemically. Does that make, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be a pain, but. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. You're, 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 I mean, like I said, it's, it's, the thing that we're, you know, um, going through here, this whole conversation is exactly what needs to, to happen. You know, I think that people, the, the, the whole thing about learning and growing and, and, and making a difference and, and creating change is allowing yourself to get to a place of discomfort, um, and mm -hmm. out of that ultimately comes growth and knowledge and eventually a place of comfort. I think that we, you know, we all have, uh, different, um, thoughts and different ideas of, of what has occurred in the past. We all have different, um, different takes on what it takes to solve it. Um, there are people who are supportive of BLM, but, may not like certain things that BLM does or may not like certain or may not buy into the total ideology, but parts of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that when that happens, you know, the unfortunate thing right now is that we still have not grown enough as a people. So when we see difference, we take 
sometimes look at difference and on different different opinions as a form of aggression or or some sort of ignorance when you know it is exactly what it is a different perspective that we need to be open enough to to listen and then collectively come to a place where we understand each other and get to a point where we can move forward you know in in a in a united way you know towards getting rid of this baggage of the past because and and it is baggage it's a lot of baggage that you know i mean and you've got so many layers of it i've heard people say you know people who were sort of admonished for doing something and they immediately if the situation you know fits into their their mindset they immediately find it is okay to blame race blame slavery for instance all right and, you know, and, and it's like, oh, well, you know, why are you telling me that? You know, look what you did to my people for the past. And I'm saying, well, you might have an effect of it. It wasn't done to you. And if you want to truly honor what has happened in your past, you have to be a part of the conversation for the present and the future. We can't just, we've got to keep moving forward. And unfortunately, you know, at the same time, I understand that mentality because, in, in in a day and age where we are, we have progressed so much in technology and everything else, um, humanity humanity hasn't progressed in the same manner in in respect to how we feel and treat each other. Definitely. So, um, I, as I said, I know this is a conversation that gets so deep and so involved, and there's no way we can cover it on an episode, uh, a podcast episode. <laughs> But I, it was certainly a fantastic conversation. It's it's fantastic to you know to to be able to speak to someone like yourself and with someone like yourself who you know you're not just the person who's who's sort of selling the the ideology, but you've lived it, and, and that's why it was important to get those details about your upbringing because you know you are qualified like any any of us you know to speak of it not only from a um, from the existing uh, environment, but from growing up in the struggle. So um, I applaud you from, you know, for getting to where you are from where you started. I applaud you for taking on a challenge that, ugh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> um, it's one that's motiv- uh, motivating and one that's inspiring, but it's also one that is tremendously uh, difficult. Um, simply because human beings on a whole are, can be very difficult people <laughs> and um, yes. somehow have to get <laughs> enough people listening here and, and people who are willing to uh, make a, a balanced change, um, not a, yeah. you know, not from far right to far left or vice versa, but a balanced change that sort of, at least in its infantile stages, begins to address um more of, of, of the challenges of, that we face, you know, and, and this goes on. I wanted to touch on other things. Maybe we'll have to do another episode because, you know, um, <laughs> the criminal justice system, the inequities there, the, mm-hmm. you know, the things that continue to happen, the, you know, the, uh, the inequities in terms of we, we look at uh, a celebrity who does something and gets a slap on the wrist and we look at someone of color does the same thing, gets life imprisonment, you know, all those things. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Uh, and I and I'm and I'm you know before I wrap this up, I'm gonna ask you, and hopefully you can answer it right now, if you would be willing to come back on for another episode, some you know later on at some point, um, to get into the other aspects of it, you know, as I mentioned, the criminal justice system and the legal system and the immigration <laughs> system, things we can't cover in this on this episode. I'd be happy to come back as often as you'll have me. I love these conversations. Fantastic. So my audience, you've heard Leah say, you've heard her uh, commit to it, and we will hold her to that. Um, (laughs) In the meantime, you know, uh, to wrap this up, I'm going to ask you from all of, and I know it's on the spot, but from everything that you've experienced and grown into, um, if you had to sort of wrap this up and, and give some some thoughts or advice to it, what would be your, your final words for this episode? Consider if we as a country embraced the concepts defined respect and embraced the concepts of respect as patriotism. 
and what we might be able to do if that was the single step we took. Wow. That's a whole lot in, the, in, in a couple of sentences. <laughs> but Leah, I want to thank you so very much. This has been not only a great conversation and a great episode, but it is it is such a, a, a fiery issue at this point. It's such a time in history um, that when we look back on, we would, we would want to see that conversations like this and the efforts that we make actually made a difference and, and, and caused a change. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I applaud you for what you do and, you know, coming from your background and, and forging this conversation. So I thank you so much for, um, uh, and for giving me the privilege of having you as a guest on 247 Real Talk. And I'm honored to have been here and grateful for the invitation and look forward to more deep conversation. This is what it's about. This yeah, is where thank we make you. change. Thank you so very much. Remain on the line. I'll be right back with you. Okay. a very special thank you to my guest Leah Kiel for joining me on this episode to share her, her perspective, her her thoughts and, and, and her powerful information with us. This is an important time in our history, an important time in our lives and to have someone like her be part of the conversation for moving forward is an absolute privilege of this show. I want to thank my supporters as always for your continued support and for making 247 Real Talk podcast a great success reminding you if you'd like to listen to this episode or any episode you can do so on your favorite podcast app if you'd like to send me a message if you'd like to leave a message for my guest if you'd like to be a guest on the show you can email me at podcast at 247realtalk.net that's podcast at 247realtalk.net until the next time take care of yourselves and each other.